I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. God's revelations to the Magi in Matthew's gospel assure us that God honors sincere pursuits of truth in his kingdom, making them worth pursuing no matter the cost. Sometimes when we're faced with a big life decision and we just can't decide what direction to take, it can be helpful to ask ourselves, what would I do if fear was not a factor and I knew I could not fail? What would I do if if fear wasn't a factor and I knew I couldn't fail? This is a way of attempting to to discern the desire of one's heart and then beginning to identify whether it's only false negative beliefs from past experiences or unhelpful voices or, or pride that's keeping us from moving in the direction we should go. So that exercise can be one way to move forward in conversation, let's say, with a trusted confidant when we're stuck over a major life decision, whether it be to move or take a job or change careers or have a kid. Though I should say it is an imperfect approach. It should definitely be supplemented with prayer. Well, this morning I mentioned that because I want to ask the question a little more narrowly in regard to the things of God and his kingdom. Is there anything we would pursue or question, or challenge if we knew God would honor that pursuit and that it would be worth it. On Christmas Eve, when I preached on Jesus' genealogy, I talked about the call of God to confront the realities of our personal brokenness, our brokenness in our family history, so he can redeem that brokenness. Even going so far as to question what blind spots to God's truth we may have inherited from the influence of our culture or society. I wonder if the Spirit has been working on anyone's heart about that in the days since. We talk a lot about false gospels of wealth and politics and our tendency to fuse to those. We talk about those a lot around here. Our tendency to, to functionally place more hope in wealth or politics than in God. It's so easy because it's tangible and at least seems to offer us more control than having to entrust our well-being to God. So maybe that's a way that, uh, that the Holy Spirit's been moving on you. Or is there a doctrine or belief you've clung to, perhaps fiercely, Perhaps it's even become part of your social identity, kind of what people know you as being about. It may have even come from Christian sources, but it may be a part of your identity you've never actually filtered through Scripture. You've never actually interpreted with reason and tradition. 
Perhaps in that case, it is pride or fear of being wrong or a lack of humility preventing you from taking a second look. You've, you've lived that way so long, it's become such a part of you. But is it really who God would have you be? It's like God's maybe placed a rock in your shoe and it kind of keeps nagging you more and more. A blessed rock. Or maybe you've taken up a posture in a relationship with somebody who you love or who hurts you. Maybe you've never weighed how you're relating to that person with, against sound relational boundaries, teachings about good boundaries. So that's what I'm asking you to think about. Is there anything that, that you would pursue or question or change or challenge, perhaps even surrender to God, if we knew he would honor that and that it would be worth it in the end? Well, the revelations to the Magi in Matthew 2 assure us that God honors sincere pursuits of truth in his kingdom, making them worth pursuing no matter the cost. This morning we heard that famous story of the Magi from Matthew 2. We just sung the familiar carol, We Three Kings, although I should go ahead and mention that there's nothing in the Matthew text to suggest that the Magi were actual kings. This is a tradition that comes from probably Psalm 72 that we read this morning, verses 10 and 11 that say, The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall give presents. The kings of Arabia and Saba bring gifts. Kings shall fall down before him. There's also no clear indication that there are only three magi. I hope I'm not wrecking your worlds today. There's no indication of how many magi there were, only that there were three types of gifts. So that's probably where that tradition came from. But having said all that, who were these magi? What was a magi? Well, the classification of magi seems to have referred to, to pagan religious figures or experts, whether actual priests or just men of great learning, who were learned in any combination of philosophy, astronomy, prophecy, even in magic. Thus, that's where you get the term wise men, because they sort of knew a lot about a lot of stuff. In the case of these magi in Matthew 2, they seem to have been members of a priestly class in the pagan religious culture, probably of Persia, around the, the area of modern-day Iran, though a lot different back then than the Islamic nation today, Persians. But these magi are clearly being portrayed very positively. To us as courageous figures for us to imitate. However, not all magi are portrayed positively in Scripture, not at all. This is why I had us read this morning from Acts chapter 13. There, Saul and Barnabas encounter a man named Elymas on one of their missionary journeys. And verse 6 says he was a sorcerer, but the Greek word there is magi. He was a magi. And in verse 10, Saul, or Paul, calls this guy a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right, full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, perverting the right ways of the Lord. And then the Lord follows that pronouncement by temporarily blinding the guy. So needless to say, Elymas is not a figure scripture wants us to imitate. So, so in Scripture, both the Magi in Matthew and in Elymas, the Magi in Acts, they're all essentially priests of paganism. 
And yet God's honoring the Magi in Matthew, but, but thwarting and condemning these Magi in Acts. Why? What distinguishes the two? What distinguishes them is what motivates them. Elemis is ill-motivated, right? Elemis crosses paths with these ministers of God, Saul and Barnabas, because he's an attendant of a Roman official but when, named Sergius. But when Sergius sends for Barnabas and Saul because he wants to hear the word of God, Elemis opposes this, right? It's competition to him. Right? He opposes Sergius from hearing the word of God. Thus, clearly, Elemis is not interested in God or the truth, but he's interested in his own profit and position. He's not concerned with Sergius's well-being. He's concerned with continuing to be able to use Sergius. But this is in stark contrast to the obvious motivations of the Magi and Matthew. They are interested in truth. Clearly, that's what they're most interested in. Whatever the source it comes from. Yes, they were born of a pagan in a pagan culture, a pagan religion, but they can't help that, right? It's where you're born. They're hungry for God and his kingdom, however he chooses to reveal it. And this is proven by their actions. As Joseph Ratzinger, also known as Pope Benedict, as he observes, all kinds of factors could have combined to generate the idea that the star they spotted contained a message of hope. But for these magi to actually set off on a journey would have required them be people of such inner unrest, dissatisfied with the fruits of their pagan religion that they've inherited, that they also would be willing to go after it and that they would be people of hope. For them to actually go after it, they would have had to be people of hope who will go after truth no matter where it reveals itself. And the revelations that God makes to these magi assure us that God honors sincere pursuits of truth and of his kingdom, making them worth pursuing no matter what they cost us. So we see God honoring these desires in the three magi, but how does he go about it? How does he honor that desire? Well, first, it seems that God actually used their own pagan religious sources and writings to lead them to himself. Remarkable. Notice that upon arriving in Jerusalem, there's an indication these magi have received more than just the sign of a star, right? Because somehow they've connected that star to the, quote, king of the Jews. In verse 2, they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. How did they know that's what the star represented? Well, a lot of scholars, including Ratzinger, believe the, the answer can be found way back in the book of Numbers in that first lesson we read today. There, there's a pagan prophet named Balaam who was against Israel. He was working for the Moab king, and he comes to curse Israel, but instead, long story short, God intervenes and causes Balaam to instead prophesy blessing over Israel. And part of that blessing is the prophecy we read today from Numbers 24. Just look what the Spirit of God has the pagan Balaam prophesy over Israel in verse 17. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Well, Ratzinger and others believe that this prophecy by a pagan prophet 
Balaam must have been in circulation in the land of these magi. Perhaps some think they're from the same, the same land. In order for them to conclude that this unusual star was specifically a sign that a king had been born. So when the magi saw the star, they made the connection and traveled west in faith toward Jerusalem. Incidentally, they likely traveled the exact route that Abraham traveled when he faithfully responded to God's call 2,000 years before. So first, God uses writings of pagan prophets to make sense of the star. Then he uses the star to lead them to Israel. But that only gets them to Jerusalem. The Magi, of course, they head to Jerusalem because that's Israel's capital. If you expect a king, that's where the king's going to be. However, we know the Christ child is in Bethlehem. So it would take a further revelation from the scriptures of Israel's prophets to direct the Magi there. And that's what we see happen between verses 3 and 6. Right? They, tell, they quote from their scriptures that the, the, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So in verse 9, they go on their way. The star they'd seen reappeared, confirming they were on the right path, leading them to Jesus, who was in Bethlehem. And when, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They bowed down and worshipped Jesus. So in these pagan magi, we see God going to great lengths to honor their desire to know him and their motive to seek the truth and live in it, right? The revelations, these revelations God makes to the magi assure us that God honors sincere pursuits of truth in his kingdom, making them worth pursuing no matter what they might cost us. Because yes, these magi not only pursue God in his kingdom, their pursuit is very costly and risky. They not only embark upon a thousand plus mile journey, they risk great harm to themselves when they unwittingly, you know, see King Herod and suggest that his rival has been born. And then as verse 11 continues, we're told that they opened their treasures and presented baby Jesus with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Almost a foreshadowing of Jesus' parable of the great price I read at the outset, right? When you find the pearl of, the kingdom of God is like the pearl of great price. When you find it, you give up everything for it. And yet there's even more embedded in this story that, co- that points to the cost of, great, of pursuing Jesus being a great cost. When they refer to him as king of the Jews in verse 2. That's a title that God's people would not have used for the the Messiah, right? They would have said the son of David, so forth. This was a title the Gentiles prescribed. And the next time it will appear in the Gospels will be when Jesus faces Pilate. And Pilate inscribes it over his cross, the king of the Jews. Secondly, they bring, one of the gifts they bring is myrrh. As the hymn that we just sung, We Three Kings, acknowledges, myrrh was a perfume used for burial of the dead. And it would next appear in the Gospels when none other than Nicodemus brought myrrh to anoint Jesus' body at his burial. And so even the story of the Magi, as joyous as it is, it points toward Jesus' crucifixion and death. What are we to make of that? Well, it's often been said that, observed that, This Matthew passage closes with the Magi 
ignoring Herod's request and returning to their country by another route. Or some translations say they departed to their own country by another way. And the church has long taken this to represent the different way of living, eternal living that's meant to come after we make Jesus our Lord. But the allusions to the cross and the pearl of great price, these are reminders that for us to receive that eternal life, that he mean, the, the eternal life he means for us to have, it will be very costly to us. We'll, we will have to make difficult choices, risk, steps out in faith. As Jesus would later teach, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their own cross. For whoever wants to save their life, if you want to retain the little life you've made for yourself, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose it for Jesus' sake and let him write your story, then you'll find true life. The revelations to the Magi assure us that God honors sincere pursuits of truth in his kingdom, making them worth pursuing no matter the cause. Well, unlike the Magi, all of us gathered here today know the name of Jesus Christ, right? Unlike how the Magi started. Many of us were born into Christianity, or at least some form of it, and yet the question still remains, how much are we really interested in the kingdom he offers more than what the world offers? Returning to that Matthew passage one final time, it's peculiar how God uses the prophets of Jerusalem to aid those magi, right? They give them the scripture that says he's in Bethlehem. And yet none of them, None of those chief priests and scribes and Jewish religious leaders, not a single one of them, follow the Magi there and also go and see the Messiah that their own scriptures testify to. Isn't that crazy? Perhaps even more strange is earlier in that passage, the Magi, when the Magi show up, it says... Uh, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, which isn't a surprise, right? But then we're told, all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Here, Jerusalem should have been overjoyed at the news that the Messiah was born. But the religious leaders, God's people, they had so sold out to the trappings of empire that they didn't even have, they weren't even willing to travel five miles to see where Jesus might be born. Not even five. These, these magi had traveled a thousand miles, right? But they had their little world they'd made for themselves. It was comfortable, right? They had, a, they had an arrangement. Yeah, Herod was oppressive. Yeah, didn't do everything they wanted, but it was a symbiotic relationship, right? So even though their own scriptures teach them to expect a Savior, they miss the Savior. Because unlike the Magi, they're motivated by fear, not faith. That's how they live. They live by fear. God's people preferring worldly wealth and power over him. And it's not a new story, right? It's the pull on all of us. They want to hang on to the crumbs empire offers them. Crumbs in comparison to the kingdom of God. And I guess, in their defense, maybe they think a bird in the hand, you know? 
the revelations to the Magi assure us that God honors sincere pursuits of truth in his kingdom, making them worth pursuing no matter what the cost. So I wonder who this morning we identify with in the story. Are we like the Jewish chief priests and scribes who are comfortable who've rationalized that they have all God has to offer them because they had the scriptures, right? Because they were God's people. Are we like the Magi? Are we like Herod's minions? Or are we like the wise men? In my own life, there's a few different areas that I've questioned and challenged or pursued healing. For example, for brokenness, after just being given the inkling that something wasn't quite right, an inkling from God, I'd like to think, something didn't quite line up in all the Christianity I was given with the truths of God's kingdoms. For example, I was given the idol of wealth, as a growing up a rich kid, I inherited the idol of wealth. Of course, you don't have to grow up rich to idolize wealth, right? I inherited the idols of empire, of white supremacy, of patriarchy, growing up in the Bible Belt, right? That's the, what the brand of Christianity I got gave me. I mean, they gave me Jesus too, but coupled with those idols. I've pursued, tried to pursue spiritual maturity through increased emotional health, through the belief that you can't be spiritually mature if you're not emotionally mature. To try to be a better husband and dad. I've pursued questions of how to properly interpret early Genesis and its relationship to scientific findings seeing how it was causing a divide of anti-intellectualism, anti-science among Christians. Now, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. Many of these journeys are far from complete. And there may be other areas where God wants me to follow him now, where he's even asked me to follow him, and I'm balking. I'm unwilling to get off the bench. But I bring up that from my personal life to say that I can say genuinely that where I have followed... There's always been difficulty and blowback, but without a shadow of doubt, every instance God has been faithful, and I have received more of his kingdom in my life, where I've been willing to follow and take those risks and question and pursue. And I am thrilled to say that we have some magi here at St. Matthias. I know we have folks here whose experience in other church contexts left them restless and feeling something wasn't quite right, whether it was spiritual abuse, toxic theology, again, um, um, you know, empire worship, and God led them into more of the truth, more of his truth. Others here are learning that it's okay to ask hard questions, to question God, right? It's okay to vent frustration to God, that God would rather us yell at him than not be upfront and honest with him, right? A lot of people, especially in Anglican tradition, right, you don't say a crossword to God. And there's just 
no ability to process emotions, no ability to deal with difficult feelings and grief. And some here have found freedom in saying, you know what, I'm going to speak my mind to God and know he's a big boy and can handle it. And he'd rather me be honest with what I think than me be always respectful. Others are saying, you know, enough of this propaganda the world is shoveling our way. I know every side thinks the other side's propagandizing, but so I'll keep it, I'll keep it generic and talk about the false gospels of wealth and politics. These, these illusions that, that say they'll satisfy us. If just this happens, they never satisfy. It's a joke. That's why I thank God Jesus is our king, right? And still others here are doing some of that deep work of bringing brokenness into the light. Brokenness from their own hearts, their own experience, their own families. So there's a lot of folks here who are imitating that journey of the Magi in their own ways uniquely that God has called them. And I just want to say how proud I am of that. How grateful I am. Those of you who've had the courage to seek God no matter the cost, because it's always a little painful, right? Many of you have family members who, as a result, think you are nuts. Think you're nuts, right? Friends who just haven't been willing to come along, you know? That can be really painful. But it's still worth it, isn't it? It's worth it because we get Jesus. We get more of Jesus. We see him more clearly. We get more of his kingdom. We get more of his righteousness, more of his peace in our lives. It's worth every bit that it costs. So my magi out there, we call it St. Saint, Magi's Anglican Church here. The revelations to the Magi assure us that God honors sincere pursuits of his truth and his kingdom, making them worth pursuing no matter the cost. So in closing, I just want to say, those of you who are Magi, don't stop. Don't get satisfied. I'm not saying don't be at peace and at rest, but stay on the journey, right? Finish strong. For those of you who don't, who don't really know what I'm talking about with Magi, and I don't know. I don't know if any of us are courageous enough to say, yeah, I'm kind of more like one of those, one of Herod's minions. I kind of just want things to stay the way they are and there to be no change and to die and go to heaven, you know, I guess would be the equivalent. There's still time to get off the bench. There's still time to get on the Magi train of pursuing truth and God and his kingdom. However inconvenient it may be to your current life, the life we've constructed, it'll be worth it. God will work it out. He'll work it out. So whatever ways God has revealed himself to you, this is an opportunity today to praise him for that for how he's worked in your life, perhaps as a magi. Or perhaps this is a time to say, I want to get off the bench and follow the magi to wherever you lead, Jesus. So with that, I want to invite Annette up and 
Let's just sing out this prayer for God's leading to continue as we sing together. Uh, We're going to sing, As with gladness, men of old.